First Family Sunday. This is going to be exciting. See how this goes. This could be make or break. I'm just joking. Um, no, we do want to um, acknowledge um, our Canvas servant leaders. Uh, we want to acknowledge our Canvas director, Sam. I'm Sam Jean. Sustained applause is necessary. Um, and so Sam moved here from Kansas City, Missouri, not Kansas City, Kansas. There's a difference. Um, and she's been serving and leading since the beginning of the Brook Church. Uh, and man, yeah, Sam, Sam is, she's her. And so we are grateful for you. Um, we're not just grateful for you, though. We are grateful for the team of people who consistently serve day in and day out with Canvas. We know it's different, right? And so, like, God invites all of us to serve as Christians, particularly, that as we serve, something happens in us. We grow closer to God, and we're able to move the mission of God forward. Um, so he invites all of us to serve in a variety of ways beyond just Sunday gathering. Um, but Sunday gathering is a unique way where we're able to serve. This is the reflection of temple worship of old. And so th there's hands and feet that is necessary for God's word to be proclaimed and God to be encountered well. And so if you serve on Sunday, thank you. Um, but there's different expressions of Sunday service, right? And so if you serve in this space, you're still able to participate um, in the larger gathering. But when you serve in, ca in Canvas, you aren't, um, particularly because we're at one service currently. Um, so you aren't. And so there's a different sacrifice that you make. And we just wanna acknowledge that. We wanna acknowledge your sacrifice the way that you inconvenience yourself, that's leadership, that's service. And so the way that you inconvenience yourself for the sake of others. So we just want to acknowledge that. So if you're just a canvas worker, um, man, you don't have to stand or anything because I know most of you guys are introverts, so that'd be weird. Um, but, but just know that we see you, okay? Um, and we appreciate you um, deeply and uniquely. And if you do not have a place to serve, um, that is a great place to lock in. But let me be very clear, as much as in any church organization, children's and family ministry seems to be the place that is in need of most hands and feet, we don't want just anybody. We have a unique responsibility to protect people, the most vulnerable among us, especially children. And so we're not looking for warm bodies, we're looking for warm hearts people who actually care and want to join families as they raise their children up in the way that we believe they should go. And so that is a good starting place. And practically, if, if we had every parent um, who, who has children, right, and every grandparent who has grandchildren just serve four times a year, that's like once a quarter, we would never be short in Canvas. And so that's a challenge I just wanna extend pastorally to everybody, if you are a parent, particularly, and if you're a grandparent as well, um, then grab four Sundays over the course of the year and, um, and join us in this work. Let me pray and then we'll, we'll knock, knock it out, a lot to cover today. Father, we honor you for um, the gift of family. This is Psalm 127. We, we read it whenever we do family dedications that we understand that children are a gift from the Lord. They are a blessing. Often we see children as a burden, 
because they're not able to do adult type things. We see them as distractions. We see them as inconveniences. We see them as obstacles to accomplishing what we want in our life, but God, give us a better vision. Give us a better vision for family. Give us a better vision for children. And would it absolutely change the way that we interact with one another, not just in this moment, but in our city? God, would you raise up the church to be a, an outpost of healthy families? And would we, would we take great ownership of those who are lost, for those who find themselves without family, whether they find themselves in the foster care system. God, we can eradicate that as a church, your collective people in America. We literally could eradicate the foster care system through our presence, through our participation, and ultimately through our adoption. So give us a vision and give us courage to lean into practical ways where we reflect your goodness and your greatness. God, we lift up other churches, other families in our city. We lift up Vu Church down the road. God, would you protect and bless them? Would you keep Pastor Rich in a place where he guards his life and his doctrine well? God, we lift up Lewis and Elevate in Miami Lakes. God, would you strengthen their work there? All that's happening, God, thank you for the, the kindness that you've displayed to them, that they were able to renovate their building. God, we covet that grace, but we celebrate it. We celebrate it. God, we pray for Christ's family. We pray for Prado and, and Jonathan. God, would you give them wisdom as they have to shepherd people Give them wisdom as they're trying to navigate the future. Give them wisdom as they continue to lead with language-focused ministries. Protect them. Protect the integrity of the gospel among them. God, we lift up the larger church and realize we're connected to a grander story than just the one that you're writing here at the brook. But thank you for this story. Would our time today strengthen it and move us forward in health? In your name we pray, Jesus, amen. If you have a Bible, grab it. Meet me in Matthew chapter six. Matthew chapter six, a lot of time. Um, well, not a lot of time, that was a lie actually. A lot to get through, not a lot of time, particularly because if you um, have kids in here, I know that you're like, oh my Lord, this is exciting and nerve wracking all at the same time. Imagine being up here in Jesus' name. Um, we've been working through the Lord's Prayer. Um, we've titled this series, The Well, wanted to go deeper into the Lord's Prayer, deeper into our intentionality with how we're being formed into the image of God as Christians. And we close our time today. We're gonna close our time examining the final lines and the petitions that they contain. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Our examination, it, it really forces us to confront how we understand the relationship between God, temptation, 
trials, our lives, and the lives of others. It forces a confrontation there, but the hope is that as we confront how we understand that relationship, really there'll be some clarifying that takes place and some strengthening so that we could apply a necessary understanding of the relationship between God, temptation, trials, our lives, and the lives of others well. I've been thinking a lot about this last um, phrase, um, and it's been, it's been doing some, some significant work in my heart. Often when I think about that relationship, um, I, I do think there's some significant misunderstandings of how God interacts with evil, and that's going to show up in this text. And if you've seen, like, because it's like a wave right now, you know, there's all of these, like, murder, like, biography, like, shows on Netflix, like, Dahmer just came out. And it's like, man, why are we, like, this is weird, guys, you know? Um, But you look at some of it and, and all of these serial killers and things like that, man, they delight in evil on some silence of the lambs, you know? Hannibal Lecter. Like you just, like you delight in like the pain of other people. Fam, that's wicked. Like that's bad. It's really, really bad. And, and honestly, in, in conversations I've been in pastorally, we actually believe God is like that. We believe that God delights in the pain of other people. And here's how we believe it. We, we believe it in the words that we say. God You have the power to stop X, but since you haven't stopped X, you must delight in it. That's a a poor understanding of how God relates to the difficulty that all of us face and the evil in the world. God God is not someone who delights in in evil and the pain of other people and their their suffering. Like, that's not the picture that's painted. The opposite is painted. We we get the picture of a God who, who stoops low and he sees the pain of others And what Matthew 9 says is he's moved to compassion. Something happens in his heart. There's this this sadness and grief that grabs him. And then it just just moves him to greater expressions of mercy. And that just sits on this passage, mercy and grace and power. And I really want that to just be felt by us as we work through the final petitions. But before we get there, Let me just put a pin in our understanding of prayer and then let's move on. If you look at the margins of your Bible um, or if you've heard this prayer um, before, there's this inclusion at the end and it reads like this, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever, amen. And it's not included in the text, it's often in the margins because of how we put the scriptures together and if it's not verifiable, if it doesn't show up in the earliest manuscripts that we start to have conversations and say, was, were these actual legitimate words or were these insertions by other sources? And, and, and honestly, Jesus probably didn't pray those words that are in the margins, but most commentators would understand that this prayer is deeply Jewish. Like it, it is baked in Jewish culture And so it almost becomes unthinkable at times to to have such a Jewish prayer not close with a doxology. And so what what some people believe, and I agree with them, is that as the the early Christians were hearing these words from Matthew put pen to paper and, and they're hearing these words recited over them, that 
almost at an act of worship, they included this doxology in reference to what was found in 1 Chronicles 29. 1 Chronicles 29, 11 through 13 reads like this. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Kind of sounds a lot like our kingdom, like that piece right there. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. You are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you and your rule over all. In your hand are power and might and in your hand is to make great and give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. This came from David's heart as he was dedicating the temple. It was a, it's a beautiful doxology. A doxology is a word of glory. Spring 2021, we did an entire series on doxologies and glorious words. And we looked through the, the vast majority of them throughout the scriptures. And, and to just put a pin in this concept of prayer, prayer is doxological. And so the inclusion of this, even in the margins, is so necessary for me because it is a reminder that the essence of prayer is doxology. It is to direct our attention to the greatness of God, right? Like whenever you see doxologies in the scriptures, they are highlighting various attributes or activities of God that make him glorious, great, and good. And all of what we've been looking at for the last few weeks reflect attributes of the greatness and glorious nature of God Almighty, Jesus Christ. Prayer is doxological. It draws our attention to the greatness of God. But, but doxology moves us to devotion. So prayer isn't just doxological in, in that it draws our attention somewhere. It's devotional in that it draws our hearts somewhere. It draws our hearts and our affections to God. Prayer is so necessary. And what Jesus has done, what we have been looking at, is the framework for meaningful, life-giving prayer that becomes the building blocks for meaningful, flourishing prayer life. And so if your prayer life right now is kind of like blah, you don't have a prayer life at all, then take the words that we have been reading and that we have been preaching and let them be your words, at least this week. And if you dare, I dare you in Jesus' name. Triple doggy dare you in Jesus' name. If you dare to take these words and let them be the building blocks for your prayer life beyond this week, but forever, you want to begin a meaningful prayer life, here's some practical things. First, take a line from here and verbalize a line. Say it actually out loud, out loud. Second, let your heart and your mind wander in contemplation and conversation with God. Say the words and then let your mind wander and see where God leads you. And then last, rinse and repeat. And you keep doing it and you keep doing it until these words do some major work in us and it shows up in our lives. We're moving on from the Lord's prayer today, but would it remain in us forever? Last lines, let's read and then we'll take it bit by bit. Um, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's take it bit by bit. In order to understand what's being said in these petitions, these closing petitions, we have to deal with what's not being said. These petitions are knitted together. They're, they're, they join to draw our attention to the power, mercy, and grace of God. These last two petitions particularly, they draw our attention to the power, mercy, and grace of God in a unique way. But for us to really walk away with that, we have to understand what they're saying, which involves understanding what they're not saying. Let's take the first petition and lead us not into temptation. We import a lot of ideas into this petition based on that word temptation, okay? We see temptation and then we have an entire complex of ideas and experiences that we now import into that word. Unfortunately for us, the English word temptation doesn't necessarily capture the fullness of the original Greek word from which this is translated, okay? Now, often when you get, you know, in Sunday services or, you know, Christian teachings, people like to flex their Greek and they like to flex their Hebrew and their Aramaic and all that good stuff. And I think it's sometimes super unhelpful because it's less about the text and more about you. You know, and I think Jesus actually speaks to people like that. You see that in Matthew 16. So this may feel like this is a major like sidebar. Yes, this is a tangent and it's part of a soapbox, but let me say it. In Matthew 16, Jesus is crushing the Pharisees and what he says to them, because they're asking for a sign. And he's like, listen, you could go outside and you could interpret the weather. You're a great meteorologist, but you are missing the plain reading of the Torah. And so he indicts them for their capacity to make sense of things that seem difficult, but to miss the things that seem easy. I am so tired of Christians and Christian scholars who quote unquote know Greek. You can read Greek, but you can't read the times. You can't read the room. You can't read people's hearts. It's unhelpful. It's unhelpful. And part of the beauty is that when we grab the Bible that we have in our hands, even though it's English, we should have confidence that God could speak to us even if we don't understand Hebrew, Aramaic, or Greek. Does that make sense? So don't be wowed by people who could do certain things. It's not helpful the way we think it is. We've got to press into what is most helpful. And there are times where we do need to do the hard work, peel back the layers and say, God, is there something in the original language that may make sense, may clarify what seems to be confusing? And as it relates to this text, I think there is. The original word here for temptation is perasmos, right? Perasmos. You're like, oh man, you can you see what I'm saying? It's weird. It's so weird, yo. But perasmos, there's really two 
ways we understand it. The first is this. Perasmos can mean testing or trials, right? So it's attempts to learn the nature or character of something. That is the first definition of our understanding of perasmos, which is translated into temptation. The second understanding is tempting or temptation, right? So attempts to make one do something wrong or enticement to sin. Both are at play here, but it seems like one is emphasized, i.e. the first one, testing. That when you start to unpack what it is, you start to really say, oh my gosh, it seems like, it seems like Jesus is saying, Lord, lead us in a way where we are not overcome by the tests and the trials that we're currently experiencing. We know it's not lead us away from it, prevent us from experiencing tests or trials. That's not what this means. Lead us not into temptation is not God don't test me or bring me any more trials. Not when James 1 is in the Bible. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Not when 1 Peter 1 is in the Bible. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and the glory and the honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The scriptures consistently say that God interacts with trials in a way where he actually brings them. God brings tests and trials. But God bringing tests and trials is not to make us stumble, it's actually to strengthen our faith. So what Jesus cannot be saying is, you need to pray in a way that says, God, stop bringing me trials or tests. One, some of y'all are praying like that, God, I don't want this test anymore. And God is like, I'm sorry, it's still here. <laughs> you know what I mean? But, but rather, what we see is that Every test and every trial is an opportunity for us to lean into the grace and the power of God and be strengthened from the inside out. In other words, we need to grow in and grow from the test and the trials that we experience. Grow in it. Grow from it. Don't always try to get out of it. That may not be the plan of God for your life. That word lead has been doing work in, in me, but because it, it really like implies a perspective regarding the leadership of God. Um, let me explain it like this and then I'll move on to what else lead us into the nation isn't, right? I've torn my ACL twice in my life. Both times hurt in case there's confusion, okay? The first time I tore my ACL, I was a young man. And so recovery was different. But I also tore it while I was at work. It's when I realized, like actually looking back, like workman's comp, depending on where you are, yo, workman's comp is amazing. And so I tore my ACL, I was at work, I used to work at a treatment facility with um, disservice, underprivileged kids who were in the system. And so we would go there and we would try to like join with behavior ter therapists and um, psychologists and try to push them towards, towards health. And I tore it playing football. 
Um, we were having gym time. I caught an amazing interception one-handed. It was glorious. Then I landed. My leg went this way, which just happened. I called my wife. Well, she's actually my girlfriend at the time. Hey, I'm about to go to the ER. How do you start the phone call like that, Lucci? I just wanted you to be aware of what was happening. Anyway, so I get surgery. Um, and because it was workman's comp, I'm at home, and they gave me this machine. And this machine is like, you remember that machine? Yeah, you do. And this machine was bending my neck. If you've ever torn a ligament, an ACL, you know it's terrible. So this machine is bending my knee, and it was hurting. But I had my Sour Patch Kids next to me and my gummy worms and some, you know, codeine, and I was good. I was like, I don't feel this at all. Then I started rehab. And I got to rehab, and so after a season of just like, you know, this machine bending my knee back and forth, I went to rehab, and the physical therapist, what he said was, hey man, we're gonna get ready to enter into this phase where we're gonna try and straighten your leg. And so I heard what he said, like I heard it, but I didn't understand what it meant, right? So I was like, oh yeah, straighten my leg, sure. And then he tried to straighten my leg, and some of the worst pain I've ever experienced in my life. I'm not one who's given over to vulgarity or violence. But as this large man is bending my leg and trying to flatten it, the thoughts that went through my head, his life flashed before my eyes. You know what I mean? Have you ever been, like, you know what I'm saying? Like somebody does something to you where their life flashes before your eyes? Parents, you know what I'm talking about? Kids are in here, let me just love on you kids. On behalf of your parents, don't do the things that allow your life to flash before their eyes. Regularly, his life flashed on four miles. It was hard, but he was stretching me in a way where he was starting to like break through the, the scar tissue that was in my leg so that it could ultimately heal better. Does that make sense? And, and the more I think of it, it's like, man, fam, like when, when God leads us into trials, it is to stretch us, which often means a sort of breaking us, but it's not breaking us beyond repair. It is breaking us down so that we can be renewed by his power and grace in our life. The question this text imposes on us for me is when God's leadership leads to difficulty in my life, what will I do? I'm gonna say that again for you guys. When God's leadership in your life leads to difficulty in your life, what will you do? How will you respond? Will you run or will you rest? The scriptures invite us to experience the leadership of God in a way where we cherish it, where we respond in obedience, where we pursue him and not merely cave under the pressure. Lead us not into temptation is not God don't test me or bring me any more trials. Lead us not into temptation is also not God don't tempt me. God tests, he never tempts. God tests, he never tempts. That's more than semantics, motivations matter. When we, when, we, when we assign temptation to God, we assign evil to God in a way that is more accusation from frustration in our hearts than actual facts. So we hold God accountable to what's happening inside of us, never looking inside of us and asking what's going on. God tests, he doesn't tempt. He doesn't lead us into temptation. 
That's how we also understand what happened earlier in Matthew chapter 4 with the spirit leading Jesus into the wilderness. For God, it was a test. But in the hands of another, an evil one will get there. It was a temptation. James 1 helps us understand this. James 1 says like this, Blessed is a man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, brings forth death. It's a process of making a sin baby that will ultimately produce death. And he says it doesn't come from the hand of God, it comes from the heart of man. That there's desires in us that if we don't deal with, will produce death in our life. And so God tests to strengthen our faith, but Satan tempts us so that we would fail and succumb to our failures, often through getting us to satisfy good desires outside of God's design. So when we experience temptation, we don't look to God and say, what are you doing? We look in the mirror and say, what's going on? And then we have spiritual eyes to say, is there a force that is trying to get me to stumble and to be separated from the greatness of who God is and his love in my life, i.e. Satan and the evil one? Does that make sense? Don't hold God accountable to our temptations. We look ourselves in the mirror and then we look up and say, let me have the eyes to see beyond what is right in front of me. I want to say something about this and I want to move on. Don't cave to the cravings. Carry them to the cross. What James has given us is a MRI of the heart an MRI of temptation. And there's all of these desires, some good, some bad, that when not given over to Jesus will ultimately destroy our life, their cravings. And for everybody, it's different. Some of us, you stare at a roast compoyo and it does nothing for you. Others, you're like, fam, that's like 20 pounds in that plate, but give me the 20, right? Cravings are different for different people, but we all have them. The scriptures invite us to not cave to them, rather to carry them to the cross. This is Hebrews chapter 12. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And then the writer of Hebrews almost inserts this in a way that says, hey, by the way, it's hard, but it ain't got that bad. This is what he says, or see, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. That's super humbling. There's that, you know, that meme that's out there where you do something difficult or something hard happens to you, and then the meme is, yeah, but did you die? 
right? You know what I'm talking about? Man, I just got through lifting these weights, but did you die? Come on. And it, and it, and it attempts to put the situation into context and focus. You didn't die. And that's what this writer is doing. Man, there's some temptation that you need to overcome, that you need to resist, and you need to resist to the point of death. You haven't even got to the place where you started bleeding yet. Don't cave. And then he goes on to the one by, by fixing our eyes on the one who did resist to the point of death. Jesus on the cross, hearing world words hurled at him. Yo, he saved all these other people. Why can't he save himself? Get off the cross, Jesus. And if that's me, oh, you don't think I... Let me take this nail out of my hand and let's have a conversation, right? That would be the temptation to flex the power of God, not for their good though, but to make a point. And he resisted to the point of shedding blood for us. And what that shows us, when I say don't cave to the cravings, carry them to the cross, I want you to hear this and I don't wanna guilt you, I don't wanna shame you, I don't wanna manipulate you, but you need to hear me. There are people who need your testimony of victory. They need to see that overcoming is possible. And every time that you endure that temptation and you keep going, you are creating a testimony that God can use to rescue some other people. Don't betray that for a moment. It's not worth it. Don't cave to the cravings, carry them to the cross. So lead us not into temptation is not, God don't bring us any more test or trials. I want a life that is marked by the path of least resistance. Lead us to temptation is not, God don't tempt me, because God doesn't tempt, he tests, he doesn't tempt. He can't be tempted with evil and he doesn't tempt us with evil. The core of lead us to not in temptation is this, Lead us not into temptation equals, don't let us be overcome by the difficulty and strengthen us deep within. God, I'm in a season, it is tough, but God don't let me be overcome. And because it's a season, there's a trial that I may be enduring because I now have the right eyes, I know that there's something that you probably wanna work in me, so God strengthen me deep within. This first petition is rich. God be God in my life. Next petition. But deliver us from evil. Deliver us from evil. There's an assertion here. There's actually two assertions. The first assertion is an assertion regarding the strength of God. Have you ever seen Avengers, the first one? I, I know that voice. I hear that voice often, Family Sunday, in Jesus' name. There's that part in Avengers where Loki, he's back in Stark Tower, you know, and the Hulk is in the tower with him. You already know where this is going. That is my son. That is my seed. Flesh of my flesh, bone of my bones. You kind of took the, the thunder for the illustration, son, just in case there's confusion. But I'm still going to do it, right? But, you know, like, he grabbed, like, he's, like, 
forcing Hulk. He's like, you can't talk to me. I'm a god, this, that, and that. Stop. And then Hulk grabs him and starts slamming him, right? And then he says, what does he say? Puny God, all the children, not all, but just my son. Like, like God, God is not like, God is not, God is not like Loki in that situation. Puny God who is impotent. That is not the picture the scriptures paint of him. There are puny, impotent gods, gods that lack power. This is Jeremiah 10. The idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. They cannot speak. They have to be carried. False gods have to be carried. For they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them. For they cannot do evil. Neither is it in them to do good. And then here comes the kick. There is none like you, O Lord. Your name is great and your name is great in might. You're not a puny God. You're not impotent. The assertion of strength here is that God is capable of deliverance. And I like that. It's powerful. There's also an assertion not just of God's strength, but on the reality of evil. So, 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 so back to the Greek, this, this word evil, it, it, here it, it doesn't necessarily put the emphasis on a person. Here it puts the emphasis on any experiences of evil and wickedness. I.e. the focus actually isn't on Satan, although we know he is the chief architect of weaponizing life and using evil to destroy people. But what's in view here is the vast scope of all expressions of evil and harm. Thus, the prayer, this petition, isn't merely, yo, 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 God, keep Satan off my back. This prayer, this petition, isn't primarily prevention, not what deliver us. It's not prevention from, it's protection in. We know this to be true because Jesus is actually going to pray for us. Jesus is just announcing these words over us. There's a way in which we are meant to understand he's praying this over us. And then in case we don't get it, in John 17, Jesus is actually going to pray over his people. And this is what he says. He says, God, I ask that you do not take them out of the world, which is full of all sorts of expressions of evil that have their root in sin, which is the fallout of choosing other than God. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of this world that is filled with beauty, but it's also filled with evil and difficulty and harm. Rather, keep them from the evil one. Keep them from the one who wants to harm them. Keep them from the things that will harm them. God, protect them in the midst of it all. That's the type of deliverance that we see in the scriptures. We know this to be true because of the confidence the writers of the New Testament have. So, 2 Timothy 4, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. I was in this experience of evil and harm. This is Paul talking about giving a defense for the faith and him actually being in chains. But then he says this, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear. So I was rescued, this is rescue language, delivered, delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever 
whatsoever, amen. And Paul, as he is uttering these words that I have been delivered from the lion's mouth, is still in chains. He still has shackles on him, yet he is claiming deliverance. Deliver us from evil is less about the harm we avoid and it's more about the one who promises to never abandon, i.e. this petition draws our eyes to a beautiful promise in the scriptures. Here's the promise. What God doesn't prevent us from, he'll preserve and protect us through. Let that sit on you, Christian. What God doesn't prevent us from, he'll preserve and protect us through. Now unto him who's able to strengthen you from the gospel, Romans 16, 5, that he could, he, he could give us the strength we need to stand. Now unto him who's able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. In other words, it gets difficult. You may trip, you may fall, but now unto him who's able to keep you so that though you fall, you get back up. God is the type of God where he doesn't prevent us from some things, he'll preserve and protect us through those things. This prayer reflects a sense of one's frailty and limitation that we would be honest with who we are, but it reflects the sense of God's greatness, his power, his mercy, and his grace at work so that we would delight in the one who is able to lead us in such a way where it's not as bad as it can be. And though it's bad, though it's hard, though harm wants to take us out, he is able to protect and preserve us to his name be the glory. I close with this and invite um, the team up. A.W. Pink has this quote. He says this, what we pray, we must endeavor to practice. What we pray, we must endeavor to practice. He, he wrote this book on the Lord's Prayer that's, that's super enriching. And that line, what we pray, we must endeavor to practice. But then he, he goes on because he's focusing on these last lines and he says this, we do but mock God if we ask him to deliver us from evil and then trifle with sin or recklessly rush into the place of temptation. Did y'all catch that? Don't ask God to rescue you while you're running right into the fire. That's weird. But that's what we do. We don't take intentionality with our lives or with difficulty or with challenge or with our hearts. And then we set ourselves up for failure. All of what we read over the last few weeks is to set us up for success. It's to lay in front of us a vision of nobility for life where we would say with courageous humility, God be adored, make your name beautiful. Where we would say with confidence, 
even if there's, 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 there's some level of doubt and skepticism that we would reach and grab over confidence and we would say that the future that God has promised, a future where it is said all things are new, is worthy of being experienced, maybe not fully now, but at least in part. Ergo, God, would your will be done and your kingdom come right now. We're in humble surrender and submission and awareness. We say, God, provide for us. Provide for us. I understand that out of your hand, provision flows. And so, God, I am seeking your hand, but I'm also seeking your heart. I want to believe that you're good and your generosity is something I can experience. So, God, provide. Forgive us. Everything that we've been talking about is a vision for life that is meaningful. Take hold of it. Take hold of it. But don't just pray it. Do the practices that we've been talking about so that we can see God's vision for our life that is rooted in this passage, in this prayer, come to bear right now in your life, in your story, in our church. More to say on that. But that's why we have next week. For now, Jesus is inviting his people to intentionally pray to a God who hears them. Would we take him up on his offer? Pray with me. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us, O God, of our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours, O God, is the power glory forever and ever. Amen.